The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, good morning everyone. And uh, let us continue. Uh, now it's only the hardcore <laughs> left of the group here, which is great. So, uh, <clears throat> all right, so we are looking at what I would broadly call right view. Yeah, this is what we have been looking at yesterday. We have the idea in the gradual training of a person uh, hearing the Buddha, meeting the Buddha, and then deciding to go forth, to become a monastic. And of course, what happens at that point when you meet the Buddha, you get told about how to understand the world, how to look at the world, is the right view that then arises in that person. And from that right view, seeing the way, seeing things, in the way that aligns with how the Buddha sees things, seeing this thing the same way as the Buddha comes right intention, and right intention is then, in this case, the act of going forth or becoming a monastic. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that. It can right intention can be becoming a lay disciple. That's also right intention. Yeah, uh, either way, it is uh, kind of the beginning of the path. Uh, so we want to just look a bit more on the idea, the content of right view. What does it mean? And um, I have one of the things that I have always found when I started studying Buddhism. People will tell you a right view is about understanding the Four Noble Truths and believing in rebirth and karma and all of these things. And that was all good. But uh, I wanted to ask myself, how can I make it a bit more practical, down to earth? What does it actually mean in daily life? Okay, noble truth, suffering, the rising of suffering, the passing away. It didn't really gel with me very strongly. You understand it intellectually, but it didn't really have a strong emotional impact. So I wanted to ask, how can we make this more real? And this is what you find in the suttas. If you read broadly everywhere, you can draw together the various threads of how the Buddha talks about this. And you start to understand the idea of right view in a deeper, more meaningful, more personal way. It actually has emotional impact on you. And it should have emotional impact, because when things have an emotional impact, that's what makes us act. Yeah, We are driven by emotions. This is kind of dependent origination from Vedana. Vedana is, doesn't mean emotion, but emotion and Vedana are closely connected to each other. From that comes the desire to act. You crave, yet the desire to act arises from how we feel and experience the world. So emotions are very important, and they are far more important than the intellect, because the intellect is like nice ideas in your head, but they don't compel you to act in the same way that emotions do. Emotions drive you, they make you act, they force you to do things. So they're really important too for this whole path of practice. That's why the Buddha talks about faith. Their faith, part of faith, is not just an intellectual agreement with the Buddha. Yeah, the Buddha is right, the Buddha is really cool or whatever. The 
faith is about emotion yeah faith is about feeling wow this is really this really it is good and you feel inspired and you want to act accordingly that's kind of the idea of faith or confidence intellectual and emotional at the same time so yesterday we had a look at this famous jara sutta found in the sutta nipata in the ataka vaga the chapter of eights jara means old age it also means a tree in Western Australia, actually. Jara, Jara trees. But uh, <laughs> this is a, this is the Buddhist Jara, um, and uh, and that is a very personal way of thinking about suffering. You're thinking about the realities of existence. It's a right view from a personal point of view. I'm going to get old. Well, you know, getting old very fast. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to die. Yeah, these things are implied in this. Uh, so this is a very. This is the kind of the personal experience of right view, understanding yourself in these terms. Uh, and these are some of the most important contemplations we can do, are these kind of contemplations about old age and you know where we're heading and these kind of things. Uh, but now I want to move to the next sutta uh, uh, on the list here. Still we're going to stay in the same chapter of eights. And this is more kind of a right view in a broader context. Uh, Right view in the context that um, takes in the world, how what the world is like. And this is the 15th sutta in the Atakavaga. It's called Taking Up Arms or Atta Danda. Taking Up Danda. Danda means like a stick, violence, punishment, yeah, all kind of um, harsh conduct basically is what is involved here. So the taking up of punishment and violence. And what is um, interesting about this sutta, it is a, not a very well-known sutta, and that's why I kind of took them up. I have never read this out on any retreat before, I think, pretty much. And um, what is interesting about it, this is another sutta, which is an autobiographical sutta of the Buddha. The Buddha says, this is what I saw. Yeah, this is how I practiced. Or at least part of it is about that. And that's really, I don't know, there's something very powerful when you hear the Buddha talk about what he saw. And then he reminds you, this is what you should see as well. This is how I saw the world. Of course, the Buddha's vision is clear. He sees things according to reality. You should strive to see things in the same way. So uh, one of these um, unknown, not unknown, but lesser, <laughs> lesser known suttas uh, that are biographical in a sense. So I will, maybe I'll just read the whole thing and then I will take them verse by verse and discuss it in a bit more detail. Uh, so this is still uh, Bhante Sujato's translation. So um, let's see. This is the most kind of most recent, the freshest translation of the press. It is, this is only released a few months ago, this translation. So this is why it is kind of interesting here. So uh, don't, I don't always agree with Bhante Sujato. He's pretty good, but I don't agree with him in every single instance. I have to say that because it sounds like I think for myself. I don't just follow the herd, the, the kind of the sheep, you know. <laughs> You're obliged, obliged to say this kind of things. Anyway, so this is what he, what he says, or the, what the Buddha says. Peril stems from those who take up violence. Just look at people in conflict. I shall extol how I came to be stirred with a sense of urgency here. I saw this population flounder like a fish in a little puddle, seeing them fight each other, 
Fear came upon me. The world around was hollow, all directions were in turmoil. Wanting a home for myself, I saw nowhere unsettled. But even in their settlement they fight. Seeing that, I grew uneasy. Then I saw a dart there, so hard to see, stuck in the heart. When stuck by that dart, you run about in all directions. And when that same heart dart has been plucked out, uh, you neither run about nor sink down. Uh, whatever attachments there are in the world, uh, don't pursue them. Uh, having pierced through sensual pleasures in every way, train yourself for Nibbana. Actually, let me stop there because it's a long poem and if it, I read everything, we'll lose track of what is going on. So I'll stop there. The first part that I have read out now is really about right view. The next part is about the practice. And the last part is about what it means to be an arahant, the result of the practice. Yeah? So you can almost see the path laid out. Um, sila Samadhi Panya, in a sense. But here it starts with right view. Then you have the Sila and Samadhi part, which is the practice. And you have the Panya at the very end, which is arahantship. So the whole sutta is laid out in this way. The right view is what I really, first part is what interests me the most, but I will go through the whole poem with you just to look at it, the whole thing carefully. So beginning, peril stems from those who take up violence. Yeah, Peril here is baya, baya is fear or danger. It stems from those who take up violence, the danda. Yeah, I think it's done. I'm not sure now. Um, yeah, and uh, so the danger comes from those who take up violence. And of course, the problem is that the world is always going to be violent. Uh, there's always going to be these kind of problems in the world. Uh, it's impossible to get away from this. Uh, just look at people in conflict. Uh, yeah. And it's just the world, this is the nature of the world, that that is violent. And this is actually very interesting here, because what it means is that, you know, very often we try to construct a world, we try to have political systems and institutions in the world that reduce violence and make the world as peaceful as we possibly can. And that's good. Of course, we should be doing that. We should try to create a peaceful world, because anything else would be madness because there's so much suffering that comes from violence. Uh, just look at the wars now in uh, Ukraine and, and these things. Uh, so, you know, there's how many refugees over there? Three millions of refugees already, yeah, from this one country being invaded. Uh, it's just kind of crazy. The amount of suffering, people being divided, families being split up. Uh, in Ukraine, all the men were told we cannot leave the country because you have to fight, yes, yeah? so you're held back. And then all the women and children are kind of sent out uh, and of course splitting up of families dividing people apart in this way creates enormous amounts of suffering here and and this is the nature of the world and this is just so important to grasp it's impossible to have a political system it's impossible to have political institutions whereby peace is always perpetuated peace is always present it, is, it cannot be done this is one of the insights really of the buddha yeah, because this, that's not how the world functions. Why doesn't the world function like that? And it's interesting, it's tied up with sensuality. 
Yeah, this is again this sutta that I like to read out on every retreat, except for this one. <laughs> but I will, I, I'll remind you what it is anyway. I, those of you who have come to my retreats before will know exactly what this is about. So this is the Potalia Sutta, the famous similes on sensual pleasure. And uh, one of those similes is a simile of the bird, the bird that gets a piece of meat. Yeah, And the uh, piece of meat here is uh, obviously a... Uh, metaphor for sensual pleasures of the world. It's difficult for a bird to get a piece of meat. Yeah, birds normally they have to kind of eat worms and insects. Now it gets a piece of meat. Yay, piece of meat. Uh, finally, you know, a butcher took compassion on me, says the bird, and gave me a piece of meat. Wow, so rare. These butchers are so stingy. They never want to give anything to the birds. They just keep it for themselves and they want money and all these kind of things. Uh, bird is so happy, it gets a piece of meat. But the problem is uh, that as soon as a bird gets a piece of meat, all the other birds also want that piece of meat, precisely because it is, it is so attractive. Yeah, the nice things in the world, we all want the nice things in the world. We all want the best possible partner. We want the best possible house, the largest possible salary, the most possible praise, the highest possible social status. Everyone wants these things. Everyone wants that piece of meat. So the bird flies off with a piece of meat, and other birds come after it. We want that piece of meat too. And they start clawing and hacking and, and biting this other bird, right? And uh, if that other bird doesn't let go of that piece of meat, uh, it will probably die as a consequence. Violence is inherent in the world of sensual pleasures, because we are competing with each other. We're always trying to get hold of the same things. Yeah, and if you look at the world, how we treat each other, how we are fearful of losing our partners, uh, how we are competing in companies for the promotion or whatever, uh, how ultimately we're fighting in the families, we're fighting in local society, we're fighting nation between nation. Why is Russia invading the Ukraine? Well, there's all kinds of reasons, but it's kind of has to do with identity, who you are, has to do with securing your own country. Yeah, yeah. all of these things, this fear of losing out of, or whatever it is that is the, causing people to do these things. It's, just, it's basically the same thing across society. And it is impossible as long as we are part of the sensory world. It has to be like that. The sensory world is inherently full of conflict, inherently violent, because that is the nature of the sensual pleasures. People fighting with people. And, uh, you know, arguments, starting with arguments in families, chil children fighting with children over a sweet or a toy or whatever, grown-ups fighting over the inheritance, whatever it is, it's just everywhere. Society is full of it. And this is very off-putting when you think about it. You think that sensual pleasures are innocent. Sensual pleasures are just about enjoying the world, right? There's no problem there. They're not innocent at all. They bring with them all of this extra baggage that is actually very painful and very problematic. And it creates all this conflict in the world. It is inherently full of conflict. And the only way to get out of that is to withdraw from the sensory world. That's why we do meditation practice, because it is a gradual withdrawing from that sensory world into the inner home that we have inside, where we can mind is liberated from that sensory world, and you can feel at peace for the first time. And that 
world, inner world of samadhi, the inner world of bliss, where you're free of that external world, there is no conflict anymore. The conflict is completely gone because it is a world of happiness. It's a world of compassion, of metta, of understanding. And when you come out of that world, you are the opposite of conflicted. You are at peace. You have understanding for other people. You're not interested in the sensory world. You're not going to fight about anything. Your sense of identity even is very much reduced. And because of all that, it leads to harmony. People who are meditators, people who really go deeply in meditation, they are the drivers of harmony in the world. Because those things, those underlying issues that lead to conflict have been taken away. They're no longer there. So spiritual people yeah, who really practice deeply, they create harmony in society. So when you meditate, yeah, it has a powerful effect on society around you. It is an act of compassion to meditate. Yeah? Just to sit quietly, close your eyes and enjoy the inner happiness and inner peace is an act of harmony for society. You're giving something to the world around you. It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? We think, yeah, I'm just being selfish, I'm meditating. Not selfish at all. It's one of the most powerful things we can do for the world is to sit down, close our eyes and be peaceful within there because we are helping to create a better society by doing that. So this is the problem with that world of sensory pleasures. Yeah, It is inherently problematic. And this is what the Buddha is seeing here, not the Buddha, the Buddha to be. He's understanding this. It is inherently problematic. Yeah, and then he says, I shall extol how I came to be stirred with a sense of urgency. Yeah, He says just later down, fear came upon him, and now he feels a sense of urgency. I've got to get out of this. This is really problematic. Yeah, And you can see that if you carry on in that world, you will be dragged into that violence, into that conflict, into those problems, into the competition. We're always competing with each other. And competition always leads to losers and winners. When there's losers and winners, there's conflict. It's kind of interesting. You know, the modern society is based on capitalism. And, uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about politics at all. I'm not going to say one political system is better than another one. Far from it. I'm just going to say that this idea of competition, yeah, the idea is, well, if we compete with each other, the best ideas will win out and it will you know, lead to economic growth. Probably true. I, I'm not going to argue with that. Maybe there's some truth to that. Uh, but it is also full of conflict. Uh, it is also full of winner and losers. It is also full of this, the, the um, seed to violence, the seed to all of these things. Yeah. So these capitalist ideas have very big downsides. Is there a better way of running our society? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think there is any way that is kind of, there is no final solution in the realm of, so, of social constructions and social politics. Because why? Well, because greed and desire will always ruin whatever system you put up and will always kind of drag it down. There is no perfect construction because of people's hearts aren't perfect. So we will destroy those systems anyways. I'm not here to advocate any particular political system. They're all flawed, but you can see how the, it leads to conflict and problems. So, stirred with a sense of urgency, right? Wow, I've got to get out of this. I saw the population flounder like a fish in a little puddle. Yeah, When a fish is trapped in a puddle, it will kind of thrash about and try to 
get out, but there's nowhere to go. Yeah, there's absolutely nowhere to go. The population, the world is a small place. Yeah, Ukraine is like almost the opposite side of the world. Yeah, but still, we are kind of affected by it, by the news and whatever. There is no, you can't get away from this. We live in this tiny little planet, and it is much smaller now than it was at the time of the Buddha. There is no getting away from this. We are floundering. It doesn't matter where you go. There's no way, there's no escape in this world. The escape is by sitting with your bottom on a cushion. Yeah, watching your breath, that's where the escape is. Right here, right now, not by traveling anywhere, going anywhere, because it's all the same wherever you go. So we are like, like fish in the puddle, small puddle, small world. Yeah, people everywhere are roughly in the same, uh, the same problem that they have. And seeing them fight each other, fear came upon me. Yeah, you're seeing everyone fighting with everyone to some extent, at least every now and again. No one is really at peace. There is nowhere to go in that world. Fear came upon me. This is the Buddha speaking, the Buddha-to-be, sorry, speaking. Yeah, so um, there is good reasons to be a bit worried sometimes. If you stay in that world, you have a problem. But of course, there is an escape. And that's why Buddhism is such a a um, positive contribution to our lives because it shows you the way out. Uh, Buddhism is not pessimistic at all. It shows you the solution to the problem. It is the best. You have to be realistic. And then when you are realistic and then you see the solution, you follow the path to the solution. So, um, yeah. The world around was hollow. Yeah, there is nothing to hold on to in that world. Uh, there's nothing in that world which is steady here. There's no way you can go to the bottom of the ocean or to the highest mountain top. The violence will kind of come after you wherever you go. There's no place of safety in that world. All directions are in turmoil. Wherever you go, it's in turmoil. Wanting a home for myself, I saw nowhere unsettled. Everywhere it's problematic. There's nowhere to go. There's no place. A home is supposed to be a place where you can relax. Yeah, You go home and then finally you get away from the world and you can relax. You can be with your family and hopefully you have good relationships with your family. There were some people saying questions here. They had a question about the, the married life was difficult. Yeah, And that's kind of... That's unpleasant when your married life is difficult because even in your home you have no place of security. Yeah, So that's kind of very unfortunate. So it's important to try to have harmony and kindness in within the family. Otherwise you have no security, no way you can go where you can feel at ease and relax. But in reality even the family life is always going to be some degree of turmoil. Everyone has occasional arguments. Uh, everyone has occasional problems in the family life. Uh, at the very least, we die from each other, we leave each other, whatever it is. Uh, so it is still there. Uh, and that's why the real refuge is within. Uh, yeah, The real home is actually inside. Uh, that is the only refuge from the world. Uh, and uh, this is the... Um, that uh, beautiful saying about Ajahn Shah, the, the, you know, the, the idea of the home within, uh, you know, where you kind of find the refuge from all the worldly problems. It happens in Samadhi. That is where you find that final peace and rest within, because the world outside is ever problematic. There's nowhere to go in that world. There's nowhere unsettled. There's no home in that world, no place of safety. Yeah. But even those people who settle down yeah, somewhere, even in the settlement they fight, 
seeing that, I grew uneasy. What was the Pali for that again? I can't remember what the Pali was for that one. Um, yeah, uneasy or again, fearful, something like that. Yeah. So, that is the problem, that is the beginning of right view, seeing the danger. The next aspect of right view is seeing the cause. Then I saw a dart there, so hard to see, stuck in the heart. Yeah, the dart, this is the cause of the suffering. And the dart is really the craving, yeah, stuck in the heart. And the craving is the is the problem that causes all of these problems, stuck in the heart, so hard to see, because craving is often so subtle, it is so refined, and we sometimes we think that craving is good, yeah, we think that craving is great, craving, hooray, I can do things in the world, it makes me do all kinds of things, it makes me feel alive, I crave, and now I can go out and satisfy all my cravings, hurrah. And uh, <laughs> this is how people often think, and it's interesting. We often identify with that craving. That craving is me, yeah, because it satisfies the urge to do. Because we are doers in our life, and because it satisfies the urge to do, which we identify with, we also identify with the craving, yeah? and we rejoice in craving. Greed is good, yeah. <laughs> that old say, crazy saying that sometimes people have: that greed is good. Good luck to you. <laughs> it's, it's madness. Greed is good. Greed is one of the greatest destructive forces in our society. But, of course, if you, you know, some of these people who are, this, greed is good was famously said by this investor back in the 1980s. I remember I was kind of, that was in my student days. Uh, 1980s was my student. I'm getting, you can see how old I'm getting here. But, uh, so, um, and he said, it was a fellow called Ivan Boski, I think his name was, and he was one of these big investors. And you probably heard this story before, because I just marvel at some of these people, how crazy they are. But he, he, you know, they have this kind of lists of the richest people in the US, or the richest people in the world, and he was number 500 on that list. Yeah, He was already super wealthy, because to be one of the 500 wealthiest in the US or in the whole world, you have to be really, really wealthy. And he said to his wife, this is the last time you see me on the bottom of that list. <laughs> and after that, he started doing dodgy things, yeah, because he was even more greedy. Yeah? So that's when he, and he was the one who traveled around and he gave talks at the universities in the US. And he's the one who said, greed is good. And then they made the famous, famous movie called Wall Street, yeah, the movie. Yeah? And that was in part based on him, apparently, yeah? this crazy guy here. Yeah? So it, it, we live in a kind of mad world sometimes. Uh, so um, yeah, the, heart, the this is this is the dart that craving. It doesn't create any goodness. It is the dart that creates all the violence and all the problems. Uh, that is what craving is about. Uh, and it's hard to see that craving is a problem, uh, but craving actually is the problem. This is what the Buddha to be sees. This is either, again, it's an expansion of right view, seeing the danger and seeing the cause of the danger in the world. And this is just the initial aspect of craving. Yeah, the craving, the fact that craving leads to violence, this is only one part of it. Craving goes much deeper than that. Craving goes to the very idea of rebirth. But this is a deeper thing. This is much more difficult to relate to. How does craving lead to rebirth is very hard to see. Huh? 
but to see that craving leads to violence and problems in society, that's actually, we can all see that. That is not so hard to see. It is more immediate. And this is focusing more on the immediate idea as a right view. Because again, you, I want to make it practical, right? I want to make it something that we can relate to. When stuck by that dart, you run about in all directions. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of nice. You run about, yeah, the craving drives you, yeah, and you run around like a headless chicken sometimes. And, and that's what exactly what people do in society. They run around and they think that they choose to run. They think that they are in charge when actually it is craving that is in charge. Craving is making you do those kind of things. And, and uh, uh, woe. Behold, and woe what is it, to anyone who stands in your way, yeah? because they are going to suffer if you stand in your way of your craving, because you're running around and you don't want to be stopped by anyone. Huh? So you run about in all directions, but when that same dart has been plucked out, you pluck out the dart, tick, pluck out craving. It's a bit more difficult to pluck out craving, but the dart is easy to pluck out. You ni neither run about nor sink down nor do you run around because craving is driving you nor do you feel depressed and sad because you don't get the results of that craving yeah you neither run about nor do you become depressed and sad anymore all that is taken out you become cool yeah cool in the higher sense not the lower sense of cool and uh, this is what uh, the buddha sees and so then now we move on to the second part of this, which is all about, that is the kind of the right view. Huh? And this was the main thing I wanted to talk about. But I want to talk briefly about the rest of the poem as well, because uh, we have to do the whole poem, I reckon. And uh, so let's just uh, read through the second part of this poem, and then we'll do the third part at the very end. Uh, Whatever attachments there are in the world, uh, don't pursue them. Uh, Having pierced through sensual pleasures in every way, train yourself for Nibbana. Be truthful, not rude, free of deceit and rid of slander. Without anger, a sage would cross over the evils of greed and avarice. <laughs> Prevail over sleepiness, sloth and drowsiness. Don't abide in negligence. A person intent on Nibbana would not stand for arrogance. Don't be led into lying or get caught up in fondness for form. Completely understand conceit and desist from hasty conduct. Don't relish the old or welcomed anew. Don't grieve for what is running out or get attached to things that pull you in. Greed, I say, is the great flood, and longing is the current, the base is the compulsion, the swamp of sensuality, so hard to get past. And then we really come to the last part, is really the uh, about the sage, yeah, the arahant is the very last part, so let's leave that out for now. Let's just focus a bit on the where the path is... Uh, talked about here yeah. sensual desires are coming through the window no, <laughs> let's, 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 shut, let's shut, shut them out yeah we're shutting out the sensual pleasures uh, sense restraint sense restraint sense restraint uh. <laughs> thank you so much ken that's really 
Very good, yeah. <laughs> so it's very it's very disruptive the sensual pleasures, right? But here it's straight away. It, the Dhamma is much more interesting, yeah. So uh, <coughs> Whatever attachments there are in the world, uh, gadita, this means the things that you are attaching to, yeah, all the things in the world that we attach to. So this is like the sensual objects of the world. Don't pursue them. Uh, yeah, if you have seen all the things that we have just been talking about, uh, then you stop pursuing those sensual objects of the world because they seem dangerous to you once you understand what is going on. Uh, and uh, then having pierced through sensual pleasures in every way, uh, train yourself for Nibbana. What does Nibbana mean? Nibbana means extinguishment. It means the coolness of the heart. Yeah. So um, you may not understand fully what Nibbana means, uh, and it's very hard to fully grasp what it means, uh, but you have an idea. Yeah. We think that some of these ideas are really out of reach, but we all have an idea what they mean. They mean the opposite of sensual pleasures. They mean the opposite of that, uh, um, the burning inside, yeah, the desires inside, the, the anger inside that burns us up from within. It's the opposite of that. It's the coolness, the extinguishment of all those passions of a human being. That's what Nibbana is. And in the sutta, sometimes the word Nibbana is used in that way. Usually it means the end of the path, becoming an arahant. But sometimes they say that there is Nibbana, which is like preliminary Nibbana, and then there's the full Nibbana. And the preliminary Nibbana is things like the jhana states, yeah? First jhana, second jhana, etc. And the final Nibbana is the state of the arahant. So we all have a little bit of idea of preliminary Nibbana. Yeah, when you feel cool in meditation, uh, you feel really relaxed. Uh, the fire of the mind is kind of slowly being uh, switched off, uh, yeah, being cooled and extinguished. And that gradual cooling and extinguishment of the fire is Nibbana to a little bit of an extent, to some extent. So we know what it is. You don't know the kind of what it is to be an arahant, but you have an idea where you're heading here. Uh, and it's great, yeah, it's beautiful. You know that you're heading in the right direction, huh? especially when you get into really good states of samadhi. So you are training yourself for this cooling off. And to do this, yeah, this is the path. You have to be truthful, huh? not rude. Yeah, truthful, not rude. Um, try to be as honest as possible. Huh? Yeah, be straightforward about things and not trying to hide things, but just be be straightforward. Sometimes it can be tough. Sometimes it goes against the ego. The ego doesn't always want to be truthful because uh, it means you have to kind of reveal things about yourself that may not be flattering or whatever. And that can be painful, but sometimes it is useful to... Sometimes you feel much more at ease if you can do that. Uh, don't be rude. Yeah, this idea of speaking in a way that goes to the heart of people, where people can relax around you, they can feel at ease when they listen to you, they don't feel like they are walking on eggshells or they, they, you know, they are frightened of you because you are a really rough character. This is all very unpleasant to be around people like that. We, you know, when, but when, when you speak in a gentle and kind and caring way, people feel relaxed around you. It's a wonderful gift we can give to people. Uh, 
because a lot of the gifts we give to people are material gifts. And of course, material gifts can be very valuable, but giving the psychological gift where people can feel at ease, where people can feel really relaxed in your presence. It's a beautiful gift to give to the world. The gift of fearlessness, the gift of friendship, the kalyanamittas and all of these kind of things. It's a wonderful thing to share that with others. And then you're building up harmony in the BSV, harmony in the Sangha, harmony between each other in the family or whatever it is, comes from this, this way of thinking, this way of living. So don't be rude. Yeah? rude rudeness is unpleasant. Be free of deceit. Yeah, people want to trust you. Trust is a very important thing in our society. Our society runs on trust. You know, when you have a business partner, you only do business with people you trust. Yeah, this is kind of how things are. If we have a society where there's more trust, it's a much better society. Yeah. Far superior. You see some of the, you can, sometimes there are statistics about this in the world, about which societies there is more trust. And generally speaking, those societies where there's more trust are considered better societies. People are more People are more happy, basically, in those societies. So trust is important. Rid of slander. You don't talk behind people's backs. Yeah, you don't say bad things about people unnecessarily. Um, without anger, the sage would cross over the evils of greed and avarice. Yeah, the two things of greed and anger always going together here. And these are some of the most important things that we try to overcome on the Buddhist path. Anger being the most important one, and then overcoming greed as well, very important. Being satisfied with what you have. Whatever you have in life, it's good enough. Yeah? Stop accumulating stuff that you have to give up anyway. That's really the truth, isn't it? You accumulate, you accumulate, accumulate, and then you have to give it all up. Kind of crazy. Spend your whole life accumulating things, and then you've got to go, and they have to leave it all behind. Invest in things that you can take with you. Don't invest in stuff that you have to leave behind. Yeah, this, is the, this is really what this is about. So forget, forget about being greedy. Instead, be generous, be kind, be caring. That is really what this is about. Prevail over sleepiness, sloth, and drowsiness. Yeah, so don't um, uh, try to avoid these things. How do you avoid these things? They are not always easy to avoid. Don't eat too much at lunch. Yeah, there's one way of avoiding it. Eat the right amount. If you eat too much, oh, you feel so tired. Uh, but one of the most important ways of overcoming these things is actually by not getting angry. You will notice that when you get angry about something, you often feel tired afterwards and slothful afterwards. So anger is actually a way of overcoming uh, drowsiness and sleepiness and sloth of the mind. Uh, a lot of desire also makes you slothful. You will notice that if you have a lot of desire, that desire has a restlessness quality to, to it, agitated quality, which eventually makes you tired as well. So both desire and anger, especially anger, makes you tired. So by overcoming these two first hindrances, you're also overcoming sleepiness to a large extent. Sometimes people ask, how can I overcome sleepiness in my meditation? And that, that is really the best answer to give. Uh, overcome, have more metta, yeah? and with more metta comes more, less sleepiness. And then, of course, make sure you sleep well. Don't try to be a super Buddhist who only sleeps 
three hours a night, yeah? Sometimes people want to be the super duper Buddhist. I only sleep four hours a night. How many hours do you sleep? Yeah, I sleep less than you. <laughs> I'm a better Buddhist. Don't think like that. Sleep what you need. Yeah, it is said that in the modern age, people often get too little sleep. So if you need, sleep a little bit extra, if anything. Don't worry about what anyone else does. Uh, Ajahn Brahm might, might say uh, he only sleeps four hours a night. Don't try to be like Ajahn Brahm. You're going to suffer if you try to be like Ajahn Brahm, unless you're ready. So be, be wise about these things. Um, uh, so especially these days when people use so much computer time and screen time and their minds are often so restless, actually sometimes we need more rest because of that. So make sure that you get enough rest, make sure you turn off your mobile phone, not just before you go to sleep, but a good time beforehand to make sure your mind has time to calm down and all of these kind of things. Be wise about how you live your life. That is... Uh, uh, so that's how you can avoid these things. Don't abide in negligence. Yeah, negligence, pamada. Uh, opposite of negligence is to be uh, uh, careful. Uh, yeah, to be circumspect uh, and to make sure you do things well. Also diligent, perhaps. A person intent on ni nibbana, on extinguishment, uh, would not stand for arrogance. Or would not be arrogant. That's really what it means. Uh, so you don't want to be arrogant. Uh, yeah, you don't want to think that you are superior to others uh, because uh, that whole idea of being superior is just another illusion. We are just beings uh, and we sometimes we may be a bit better because we are practicing well. Next day we are worse because we are in a bad mood. David, you can't compare people with each other. You should never feel superior because you are a Buddhist. Uh, the Buddha never felt superior even though he probably was superior yeah he, he if anyone is superior is the buddha he never felt superior and that's kind of the opposite of arrogance the more enlightened you are the less arrogant you are yeah? which is kind of amazing here yeah? don't be led into lying or get caught up in fondness for form yeah all the forms of the world the beautiful things in the world the rupa of the world yeah forget about all that stuff completely understand conceit yeah, this is kind of where it gets very deep, full understanding of conceit, the penetrating the asmimana, the I am conceit, and desist from hasty conduct. It's kind of interesting. What does that mean? Well, it means that sometimes we like to be impulsive. Yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Suddenly you make a decision about what you want to do. Let's go for a holiday to Bali now. And off you are on the next plane to Bali. Especially in Perth, it's kind of the number one holiday destination in Perth because Bali is so close, yeah? I close four hours by plane, if not that close, but you know, in Australian standards it's considered close. So, uh, but be careful with that kind of um, hasty conduct when you are impulsive, because impulsiveness is okay if you're coming from a good place inside. Yeah, so know where you're coming from. But be careful, because if you're coming from defilement, impulsiveness can be very dangerous. Yeah, and you can delude yourself. Oh, I'm just being impulsive, and it's kind of nice just to let go a little bit. But uh, in Buddhism, we can't really afford to make mistakes. So don't allow that hasty kind of conduct. Hold back. Be careful with how you live your life. Always try to be mindful in, in your actions and activities. 
not mindful in the sense of satipatthana, but just general mindfulness in daily life when you know what you're doing here. Hasty conduct is no good according to this. Don't relish the old or welcome the new. Don't grieve for what is running out. Get attached to things that pull you in. And uh, this is a little bit like that famous verse in the uh, Bad Eka Ratta Sutta. Yeah, the one, one Fortunate Night Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya, Middle Length Sayings number 131, 131, 132, 133, 134. I think it's, it's four of those suttas. Yeah, so... Um, and where it says something, something to the similar kind of effect, yeah, don't, uh, well, don't kind of um, look forward to the future or hang on to the past, but stay in the present. Uh, this is what this is kind of saying, yeah. Let go of the future and the past. Uh, there's nothing interesting in the future anyway. This is where we get it all wrong. We think the future is interesting. Uh, we think that there are things to look forward to in the future. Uh, we think that if we solve the problems of life, we will have a better future. Uh, but actually, the future is just more of the same. This future here, this future of this world, is just more of the same. There is no nothing there of any real interest. It's just going round and round. Another war, yeah, another COVID, another whatever. I always come to spoil the fun that we're having. Another argument in the family, another person dying and getting sick. Yeah. Another madness happening in the world. Another crazy leader doing crazy thing, things. This is the nature of this world. There's nothing there to, of interest there. There's more problems, more irritations, more things to get upset about. The place that you create your future is not by resolving the problems of the world. The place to create your future is how you live now. What is my state of mind? Am I being kind? Am I doing the right thing? That is where you create the future. So you create the future by being peaceful, by not thinking about things, by being kind within, having metta for the world. That is where you create the future. So every time you think about a problem in your meditation, you are losing out on creating the future. You think that you are creating the future because you think you're resolving the problem, but you're actually doing the opposite. Creating the future happens by letting go of those problems, finding the kindness within and the peace within. That is how you resolve the problems of the future. It's very counterintuitive, but that's how it works, right? If you want to make a good life for yourself, you make that good life, not by sorting things out, but by living well. And that happens in the present moment, especially in meditation practice. It's very interesting, so because it's so counter, it's so opposite of what we think. And to be able to get that, you have to think about it again and again and again. Why am I always thinking about the future? There's nothing there. It is completely uninteresting. There's nothing there. It's just more of the same things, more of the same problems. There is another future to be made. It is made through living well. That is the future I want to make. The only one that is really worthwhile. Once you start to get these things, it's much easier to become peaceful, right? Much easier to sit down, close your eyes, and just allow peace to come. And the past, well, the past is... Even more crazy to think about, in a sense, because it's finished, there's nothing there. Usually the reason we hang on to the past is because of regret or things that we have done. So forgive the past. Don't make any more mistakes in the future. Then you don't have to think so much about the past. Don't think the past was wonderful. Sometimes we dwell on the past, think, oh, I was so happy. 
I was so happy before, yeah, before the war in Ukraine or before these disasters I've had in my family. Everything was so wonderful. I've lost it all. And then we live in the past, thinking the past was some kind of mythical land of milk and honey. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> but actually the past is just gone. It is no longer there. Forget, forget about all of that. Sometimes we think the past was great. Actually, the past wasn't that good anyway, because it had its own problem. Sometimes the past may have had some good qualities, but they are gone. Now is the time to move on and to recreate and to build up those good qualities that are there. It's interesting how life goes in these waves. You're going really well for a while, then it goes down the dumps, yeah? But, uh, and then it goes up again. But if you are a good person, your underlying baseline is the same. Just because you're going down doesn't mean the baseline has changed. It's that your circumstances have changed, so it obscures the baseline where you were before. But if you live well in the meantime, even then when it's going down, you're lifting that baseline. So when you come back again out of that trough in your life, you will actually be at a higher state than you were before. Because you're lifting the baseline, even though you cannot see it at the time, you're doing that which will give you even more happiness in the future. By living well, when times are difficult. Yeah, so you're kind of, you are, you are there creating those wonderful causes for the future, right now, during the most difficult times, whatever that might be. So for, let go of the past, yeah? There's no point in thinking about the past. I was happy before. It doesn't get you anywhere. Now is the time to create the conditions for the future. Greed, I say, is the great flood. Longing is the current. The base is the compulsion. Yeah, we are compelled by desire, by craving. It drives us on. We cannot really hold back. We, it's this force that makes us act in the world. We are compelled by this. It's a great flood. It's a strong current. This is a beautiful um, uh, met, uh, metaphor, simile for, uh, uh, for the sh how short life is. And this is the sutta I was, I was talking about yesterday, the Araka Sutta, found in the Anguttara Nikaya 7, 72 or something like that, or whatever it is, can't remember which number, uh, somewhere around 70. And uh, one of the similes there is the simile of the swift mountain current. Yeah, life is like a swift mountain current, this fast current that drags with it all the flotsam and all the kind of branches and trees or whatever going down really fast. And we are like this fast mountain current moving around in the world, restless, agitated, trying to do things that never really come about. And then we die disappointed because all the things we thought we were going to create were actually turn out to be impossible to create. You can't take it with you. When you die, you think, ah, everything has to go. I wasted my life. Don't waste your life. <laughs> the swamp of sensuality is so hard to pass. It's very hard to pass because we are so enmeshed in the world of the five senses. This is all we know. And we really have to reflect carefully to overcome those five senses and then step out of them, move to something higher, higher, which is the bliss within, the samadhi, and all of these things. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? I think this is just really, I don't know, it's, 
It's, just, it's nice to see it from a different angle. This is a different sutta. The ideas are the same that we talk about all the time, but you get slightly different angles. And every time you get a different angle, it sinks in in a different way. You see things in a new light. You think, wow, and it's great. I mean, I read the suttas all the time, and I still find it really, really inspiring. So anyway, let's go on to the, um, the last part of this uh, little sutta, these poems, and this is about the Arahant. Yeah? We're going to go through this fairly quickly, because it is inspiring, but um, it is also very profound. The sage never strays from the truth. The Brahmin stands firm on the shore. Having given up everything, they are said to be at peace. They have truly known they are the knowledge master. Understanding the teaching, they are independent. They rightly proceed in the world, not coveting anything here. One who has crossed over sensuality here, the snare in the world so hard to get past, grieves not, nor hopes. They've cut the string, they're no longer bound. What came before, let it wither away. And after, let there be nothing. If you don't grasp at the middle, you will live at peace. One who has no sense of ownership in the whole realm of name and form does not grieve for that which is not. They suffer no loss in the world. If you don't think of anything as belonging to yourself or others, not finding anything to be mine, you won't grieve thinking I don't have it. Not bitter, not fawning, fawning means greedy here, unstirred, everywhere even. When asked about one who is unshakable, I declare that that is the benefit. For the unstirred who understand, there is no performance of deeds. Desisting from instigation, they see sanctuary everywhere. A sage doesn't speak of themselves as being among superiors, inferiors or equals. Peaceful, rid of stinginess, they neither take nor reject. So that's the Arahant. So um, let's just quickly have a look at this. I, I'd like think it's good to finish this sutta this morning. I'll just have a quick look at this. So you never stay from the truth, stray from the truth. Yeah, once you're an arahant, there you just uh, always truthful. You're standing on firm ground. There is none of that shakiness anymore. Yeah, you cross the flood. The flood is always dangerous. You always can get swept away, uh, or the ground of life is often shaky. Uh, yeah, it's like you are always kind of, everything is always uncertain. You never know when you're going to fall over. But the Brahmin, finally, you can rest, you can relax. You're on firm ground. Uh, there's no shakiness anymore. You cannot be, uh, impermanence is no longer going to surprise you and give you a hard time. Uh, and the reason for that is because you have given everything up. You're not holding on to the things in the world that are impermanent. Uh, because you're not holding on to anything. Uh, the world, you're not taking your stand anywhere. Uh, then there is nothing, that, you know, you, you can no longer be shaken, you can no longer fall over because you're not taking your stand anywhere. And because of that, you are at peace. You are a knowledge master. Yeah, you have seen the world for what it actually is. 
you have real insight. You have the yatabut and anadasana, knowledge and vision of according to reality. Yeah. And uh, because you have understood the teaching, you are independent. Uh, you don't need to rely on anyone in the whole world. You are completely independent. Uh, isn't that kind of nice to be independent, not having to rely on others? Uh, you can just have full belief in yourself. You know that what you know is true. And if other people ridicule you, if other people say you're wrong, you can just shrug your shoulders and think, well, actually, I know what I'm talking about. You don't. Yeah, and you, you know that. You don't even have to argue. You don't have to say anything. Because for you, you are complete. You never argue with anyone, in fact, as an arahant. You're always at peace. And you feel compassion for the other person because they don't understand. It's kind of powerful. You proceed rightly in the world, not coveting anything, yeah? no desire, no holding on. You have crossed over sensuality, again, this snare so hard to pass, so to get past. You grieve not, you don't have any hopes for the future, yeah, because all of that is given up. You know that having hopes for the future is a fool's game. Instead, you find the peace within. You don't grieve. The strings are cut. No attachments. What has come before, you let it wither away. The past becomes irrelevant. In fact, you know that the past is just one large amount of dukkha anyway. The future, whatever there is, is more dukkha. So you let there be nothing. This is kind of the Buddhist way. Nothing is the best. <laughs> this is Buddhism for you in a nutshell. Yeah, It's very profound. Let there be nothing. Yeah? Nothing in the future, nothing after, just nothing. Yeah? Nothing is the most, one of the most beautiful things in the world uh, when everything passes away. Yeah? That's the end of dukkha, the highest happiness, uh, nothingness. Uh, it's so profound, but that's why it is so beautiful. This is why it's so hard to understand. This is why it can be hard to sell Buddhism. Don't tell people straight away there is nothing because you will never see them again. Yeah? <laughs> Be gentle with them. But once you start to understand these ideas, you start to understand how powerful this is. Yeah, the idea of nothing here. Don't grasp the middle. You will live at peace. You have no sense of ownership in the whole realm of name and form. Name and form is all there is. In the whole realm of experience, there is no ownership. Yeah, experience means everything, yeah, because everything is in experience. And if you own nothing in experience, well, then there's nothing that you own. By experience, I mean everything you feel, everything you perceive, everything in your mind, everything yeah, is experience. Nothing there that you own. And you don't grieve for that which is not. Yeah, this, there's no self. You don't grieve because of the absence of a self. In fact, the opposite. You are overjoyed that you have seen through this illusion. And for that reason, you don't suffer any loss in the world. That's impossible. You don't think of anything as belonging to yourself or others. Not finding anything to be mine. You can't grieve because you can't, you can't think, I don't have it because you never had it in the first place. Not... No ill will, nor desire, nor bitter, nor fawning, unstirred, even everywhere, yeah, always even, the even mind, the mind that cannot be ruffled in any way whatsoever, unshakable. Yeah? That is the benefit uh, of a person who live in, who becomes an arahant. Uh, 
unstirred who understands there's no performance of deeds you don't create deeds the comma that leads to future rebirth all of that is taken out you don't instigate these things you don't instigate the comma everywhere is sanctuary for you because you have let go of everything here the sage doesn't speak of themselves as being among superiors, inferiors, or equals. There's no conceit anymore. There's no sense of inferiority, superiority, or even equality. Yeah, in kind of the modern ideal of we are all equal. Even that, we're not even equal in Buddhism. Yeah, we've gone even beyond that equality thing. Yeah, in a sense, we are equal in a very deep sense. We're equal in the sense that we are all moving, always changing, always becoming different. In that sense, we are equal. We're not, not equal in the sense of uh, being exactly the same. Yeah? But we're equal in the sense that we're all these blobs, always moving, always changing. Yeah? And it's kind of crazy. Sometimes we are proud of ourselves. We're proud, okay, I have a good education. Yay, good education. I, I, I'm, I'm reasonably intelligent. Yay, intelligent. Uh, come from a good background, yay, come from this country, yay. And we are proud of these things. And then in your next life, you are stupid, you are poor, you have no education at all, you live in a completely different country. And so you, you see how stupid it is to be proud about things, because actually we are always changing, especially when you take into account rebirth. We have been all of these things. All of us here have probably been parents and children and husband and wife <laughs> in our past lives, yeah. And we have lived in all of these different cultures, been all kind of different people, from the lowest caste to the highest caste to, the, to everything. So how can you not have compassion and love for everyone in the world, regardless of the background? That is the only smart thing to do, because we have all been in those positions. And it's a beautiful way of thinking because it takes away the barriers between us. We create barriers, you know, one gender for another one, one nation against another one, one social status against another one, the educated against the uneducated, the handicapped against the non-handicapped, whatever it is, all these barriers that exist in our minds. Let's pull down those barriers and see each other as human beings, all trapped in the same problems, all aspiring for happiness, aspiring for goodness in the world. I don't know, there's something very powerful about that. Uh, and I think the Buddhism helps us to overcome these barriers that we tend to create. Uh, and uh, that's very, very useful. Uh, peaceful, rid of stinginess, then neither take nor reject. Uh, yeah, you're even in everything. Yeah. Anyway, so there you are. Uh, so that gives you the... Uh, right view. I've gone a few minutes over time, that sometimes that happens. Uh, um, and so the, starting with the right view, and then a little bit about the practice, and then the higher right view of the Arahant at the very end. Uh, so uh, just to... Uh, uh, yeah, so that's that. And uh, we're going to continue more with the right view uh, this afternoon. But in the meantime, keep on enjoying yourself. Have a nice lunch, and we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock. Let's pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.